the Lord. Thanks, Abe. If you have your Bibles open, we'll jump back into studying Titus chapter 1 together. Abe said to me at the beginning of the service, so you're finally getting to the end of the chapter. And yes, this will be the last sermon that we hear, at least for me at the moment, from Titus chapter 1, but it's been a fruitful study, I trust. What we did last time, as you may recall, is looked at verses 10 to 14 from chapter 1. And there we consider the reason for Paul's clear instruction that he gave to Titus to really give direction to Titus and set things into order on the island of Crete where things in the church were really, for all intents and purposes, damaged, unfruitful, lacking truth and direction. We said that because of the prevalence of false teaching in the Cretan church where Titus was, urgent action was required to set those things in order to set men who were qualified morally and with the ability to teach and hold fast to God's word into positions of leadership for the benefit of the church and therefore their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in the place that they lived. The false teachers, as you'll recall, embodied that long-standing reputation of the Cretan people, that culture that was known in Crete and the surrounding area for centuries Paul agreed, as we saw in Titus chapter 1, with the ancient synopsis, that ancient description of Cretans. He said, they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that attitude, that pervasive style of living had infected the church to the detriment of their witness in the world. The church had become infected with that worldliness through the influence of men who imbibe that manner of living and selfishly serve themselves instead of others. So hopefully we came away from our study last month with an understanding of why Paul insisted on such high standards for those who lead in the church. What the Cretan churches needed most, according to this letter, as Paul opens it up, was men who could live lives in accordance with the gospel transformation that they were proclaiming. There had to be a consistency between that which they proclaimed and that which they actually lived out. Moreover, with all of the falsehood in the culture and even in the church, men were needed who would hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This is God's truth, being able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll see more tonight of why that was necessary. The spiritual health of the church, the spiritual health of God's people and their witness in the world really depends on God's leadership living in that way. Now my goal this morning is to lead us through the remainder of chapter 1 and help us understand more fully the insight that Paul gives into why the false teachers were acting in the way that they were why they were so prevalent and so problematic. I want us to learn what Paul says about the false teachers and why they were doing what they were doing so that we ourselves can understand it, not only understand it, but avoid it. Tonight I want us to see two things, two broad things, from verses 10 through 16. We're going to just tackle this whole thing, verses 10 to 16. Firstly, what I want us to see is what I'll call the fundamentals of false religion. Fundamentals of false religion. 
These are two particular things that I think are captured in this passage that we as a church need to be on guard against if we would make sure that our gospel ministry is to continue faithfully in Windsor, Ontario. These are two things that marked the troublesome leadership in the church at Crete before these qualified men would be appointed. Knowing what trouble existed on Crete in the past, we'll be prepared to proceed faithfully in the future. The second thing that I want us to see from our text tonight is the nature of knowing God. The nature of knowing God. As we consider the nature of knowing God, we'll understand why the false teachers on Crete were acting the way that they were. I'll give it, give it away now. They didn't know God. They did not know God. And here is where I want the word to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts tonight. The question of whether we truly know God is perhaps the most important question you and I will ever have to consider. Do you and I know about God, or do we know him in a personal, saving, transforming way? If we say we do know God in a personal, saving, transforming way, Do our works align with our words? Our time in this passage tonight should, I hope, compel us to evaluate our lives in in light of the truth of Scripture and so confirm that our calling and election in Christ are indeed sure. That will bring benefit to ourselves spiritually, but also the church corporately as we all are tested by the Word of God tonight. When we consider Paul's driving concern in the whole letter to Titus, we see that that seems to be an appropriate application. He is concerned that the people in Crete and the church there are adorning the doctrine of God their Savior, proclaiming a message of transformation, but also validating it with their lives. If we profess to know God, we ought to be putting on display the doctrine of God who saved us. So that's what I want us to see, the fundamentals of false religion and the nature of knowing God. I'll read our text so that it's fresh in our minds, and we'll begin to walk through it. Remember that Paul, as he writes verses 10 to 16, is explaining the qualifications for the elders that he gave in verses 5 to 9. So listen again to that explanation for those qualifications. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So last time we saw Paul's insistent that the false teachers on Crete receive what I called redemptive rebuke. That was to prevent them from further infecting the church at Crete with the falsehood that they were teaching. A man appointed to lead the church 
on Crete or the churches on Crete would have to rebuke those who were leading people astray away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to be rebuked so that they may be sound in the faith themselves, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. That was in verse 14. We looked at it last time. The false teachers, those who are identified in verse 10 as those of the circumcision party, those who were influenced very heavily by Jewish legalism, were devoting themselves to things not in agreement with the apostles' doctrine. They were teaching for shameful gain. They had self-interest. They were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Unfortunately, in the absence of godly leaders that Paul needed to see on Crete, certain things had been allowed to establish a foothold in those churches. Now, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2, Faithful men are supposed to entrust sound doctrine to faithful men who will indeed equip other faithful men to take that sound doctrine and, and, and make sure that coming generations are living lives in accordance with God's truth. That's how the church is built up in its Christian maturity is through the ministry of that truth which is handed down from one generation of faithful men to another. But on Crete... Certain things, certain what I've called fundamentals of false religion, had taken root. They were being passed along from leader to leader instead of the truth that accords with godliness. I would like to point out two fundamentals of false religion in in the verses that we're looking at tonight. These are two basic building blocks that I think, if we test these things, are present in every counterfeit version of Christianity. The first one, the first building block, the first fundamental of false religion is this. It's a lack of truth. The second is leaders who serve themselves. Now, please test that. If you examine any false religion, especially those tending to say that they're Christian, you would find that either one or both of those fundamentals were present and that people would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. We certainly see that on Crete, as I hope we'll see. The way in which Paul describes the teaching on Crete can be seen in verse 14. He mentions Jewish myths, and he mentions commands of men who turn away from the truth. So both of those phrases highlight a distinct lack of something. I've already given it away in what I said the first fundamental was. It's a distinct lack of truth. The truth is missing in the myths and the various speculations and foolish controversies that they give rise to. The truth is obviously missing from commands of men who turn away from the truth. There is an absence of truth. So one brand of religion might take away from the truth, while another brand of religion might add something to the truth. In either case, the fundamental of false religion that I'd like to draw your attention to is a deviation from the truth. The other problem in the Cretan church, according to our text, was related to how the false teachers were serving themselves. Verse 11 says that they were devoted to commands of men rather than what they should be teaching, the commands of God. And the text tells us that they are selfishly devoted to teaching those things. They were teaching for shameful gain. It's all about them, not about the Lord. So see then with me another fundamental of false religion, 
leaders who serve themselves. I tried to summarize this. Here's my summary. The church becomes corrupt and its witness for Christ is impacted negatively when the men in leadership teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, especially when they're ministering such a way as to hold people captive by the commandments they have either made up in the absence of truth or added to the truth that they already have, truth that should guide them. So there's a blend there, two fundamentals of false religion and absence of truth or deviation from the truth and leaders who serve themselves. The New Testament is not silent on the reality that the early church struggled mightily with false teaching, with false religion. It was prevalent at Ephesus. You'll note the words that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. There he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this is insight from Paul to Timothy, where he was at Ephesus, to say that people would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, led astray by people who would reject the truth and selfishly impose commandments of men on the Christianity that they should have been learning. Paul tells Timothy, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So note again that first fundamental that we looked at, the lack of truth that accords with godliness that's so significant in the book of Titus, the letter to Titus. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. There's that satanic, that demonic connection. The father of lies is causing people to stray. There's an absence of truth. Paul warns Timothy that the influencers, those false teachers, would be insincere. They would be liars whose consciences are seared. Here is yet more lack of truth, this time embodied by those who are insincere, those who are liars. Now, if you are, insinc- if you are an insincere person, then what you portray on the outside is different from what is going on on the inside. If you're a liar, you're given to either withholding or twisting the truth. If your conscience is seared, it cannot respond to the goodness and the purity of God's law in the way that leads to spiritual life, but rather it corrupts God's word. A a, a seared conscience will permit you to act selfishly, abusively, and shamefully to extort from people what you want, no matter what it costs the person that you're trying to extort. If your heart is in that condition, then it's extremely hardened. That is a dangerous place to be. That is where the false teachers, not only on Crete, but in Ephesus, were. Finally, as we look at that passage, Paul says that the insincere liars with seared consciences forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So these are things that God would invite us to enjoy within the freedom of the gospel But false teachers who are liars and insincere with seared consciences are forbidding them. They're taking what God says is good and saying, no, these are bad. 
They're making a man-made religion, leading people astray from the freedom that they have in Christ. They're selfishly adding burdensome man-made rules to the truth of God's word, which in turn leads to empty, joyless religion. It leads people to hell more than it points people to the joys of heaven. So there's legalism in Ephesus. There's legalism happening on Crete. We also see it as we look at the churches of Galatia and in Colossians as we read that letter. The Lord Jesus himself was not unfamiliar with the issue of false teachers. Some of those who opposed the Lord, those forerunners to the insincere, legalistic, and oppressive leadership on Crete and elsewhere, were adding to God's law their own standard of righteousness, compelling people to follow them as opposed to following the Messiah. Note with me, this is a longer passage, so I'll ask you to pay attention. These are the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7. But here's a demonstration of how the Lord himself battled against legalism, battled against false teaching. Mark records, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now perhaps you picked up on some of the characteristics that we already saw, the characteristics of false religion that even Jesus himself dealt with. The Lord himself dealt with those who were holding on to and influencing others in the direction of false religion, adding to the commandment of God by teaching the tradition of the elders. They insisted on various cleansing rituals that would literally clean the outside of the cup, as Jesus would say, while the inside of the cup remained unclean. These are things that they tried to impose on people as religion to make oneself right with God, while missing the way to be right with God. The Pharisees of his own day worshipped God in vain, he says, as an empty ritual, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. There's the phrase that we saw in Titus. Jesus says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's what people on Crete were doing. 
Jesus notes that his opponents, the Pharisees, rejected the commandment of God in order to establish their own tradition and made void the word of God by their tradition that they had handed down. Many such things they did. What corruption. Jesus does not mince words when it comes to rebuking these false teachers who led so many astray. He was eager and willing to confront them for how they had established and maintained that false religion. It was a system of works righteousness. As we read through the Gospels, we so often find that the religious leaders whom Jesus opposed were so often found to be self-serving. As they deviated from the truth with their traditions, do we not see even there the fundamentals of false religion, the absence of truth, and leaders who serve themselves. It's worth asking the question as we return our focus to Titus chapter 1. What would drive a teacher, what would drive a leader in the church to insist on these legalistic regulations? What's going on in his heart that compels him to do that? Why are the false teachers doing what they're doing? What's going on under the hood, we might say? What Paul says next in Titus chapter 1 is helpful. He gets to the heart. Literally, he gets to the heart of the issue. He says in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Here, he's making a statement about the deadened spiritual condition of the men on Crete who were leading people astray. Carefully note with me how he contrasts two groups of people. On the one hand, he has the pure, and on the other, he refers to the defiled and unbelieving. The pure are those who have been washed clean on the inside, at the heart level, those who have been given new life in Christ and experienced the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, as he will refer to in Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. The blood of Jesus has cleansed these pure people from all of their sins, from all of their defilement before God. The pure stand clean before the Lord, clothed in the righteousness, get this now, from God, the righteousness from God that comes not because of works done by us in righteousness. Titus, or Paul makes that abundantly clear in Titus chapter 3, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but as a gift of God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. The pure are believers who know the truth. In contrast, the defiled and unbelieving are those who remain dead in their trespasses and sins. They are impure and defiled before the Lord. They do not believe the gospel. They have not received that washing. They're eager to make themselves right with God by works of their own righteousness or their perceived righteousness, not embracing the truth of the gospel that says you need someone to cleanse you, who is Jesus Christ. They refuse to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to provide that cleansing, and they remain defiled before God. Instead of believing the gospel that announces full and free forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ's Death and resurrection, they turn willfully in disobedience, in unbelief, to their own attempts to make themselves right with God. Now, you want to talk about knowing God, 
and whether we know that we're right with God, we need to understand how to be right with God. We want to be pure, not defiled and unbelieving. We need to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and be cleansed of our sins before God, not because of anything that we attempt to do that we think are good works, but on account of what Jesus has done for us, received by grace through faith. The defiled and unbelieving are, to borrow the words of Jesus, clean on the outside of the cup, but thoroughly filthy and unclean on the inside. Now, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. What does he mean? We might say all things are clean. Paul knew that the old covenant had been replaced with the new, such that the regulations originally designed to distinguish God, or sorry, to distinguish God's people from the nations are no longer in effect. They no longer have that use. No longer should God's people look to the law of Moses for issues of purity. Those things intended to be, a, they, they were intended to be a pointer to the greater cleansing that we need. For those who have been made pure in God's sight by receiving that cleansing that only Jesus can provide, all things are pure. Those made pure in God's sight through Christ may enjoy freely that which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's exactly what Paul tells Timothy at Ephesus. They ought not to be burdened by commandments of selfish men who claim to hold out the way to be right with God, but deceive people and turn them away from the only way who is Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to the pure, note what Paul says about the defiled and unbelieving. To them, nothing is pure. In their unbelief, everything is unclean. Rules must be established by them to clean the outside of the cup. The strict, man-made religious regulations and traditions that they insist upon drive people away from the freedom that we find in the gospel toward deception that says, I can make myself right with God. You have to follow me, and I'll show you the way. It's not what we do or don't do, or where or not where. It's not the places ultimate that we go or not go that makes us right before God. All of these legalistic religious systems miss the point of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 about what truly defiles a person. And this is where the false teachers have it wrong. They miss the heart of the issue. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, and then verses 20 to 23, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's not about cleansing the outside of the cup. The inside needs to be cleansed. The pure are those who have hearts that have been cleaned, fundamentally changed. And it's evident by the corrupt conduct of these false teachers on Crete that they had not received that cleansing. By their corrupt conduct, it was clear that the hearts of the false teachers were not set on obeying the Lord, nor producing the fruit of the Spirit, 
But they were spewing forth. They were leading other in, others in the direction of all of the things that Jesus listed, that sexual immorality, the theft, the murder, the adultery, the coveting, the wickedness, and so on. Now, at the end of verse 15, Paul gives us further insight into what is going on, what's gone wrong with the hearts of these false teachers. He says, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are, undef- are, are defiled. These are two significant functions of the human heart, the mind, how we think, our intellect, and our conscience, how we respond to or how our heart pricks us when we do right or wrong. Both of these things are defiled. The defiled mind is incapable of thinking in a way that pleases the Lord. It is incapable of thinking in a way that pleases the Lord. Things like purity and contentment and humility are offensive to the defiled mind. The defiled conscience doesn't convict the defiled and unbelieving person when it should. That's why the false teachers, the impure and undefiled, sorry, the defiled and unbelieving, as Paul describes them, that's how they could carry on doing the things that we know are wrong, but they were self-deceived into thinking they were perfectly acceptable before God. Their consciences were defiled. They'd stopped operating. They refused to believe the gospel. They remained unclean before the Lord. They established their false religion. They followed their deceptive hearts down the path of deceiving others while becoming further deceived themselves. Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy 3.13 and says that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving, deceiving others, And being deceived, becoming further and further deceived themselves. Now spend a moment, in light of all of that, and think of the disaster of that deception. The false teachers on Crete, defiled and unbelieving as they were, became fully convinced in their own minds that to teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach was acceptable before God. They thought that that was faithfulness to the Lord. They thought that they were doing the Lord's work. As they were doing this in the church, they may have even said, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. Follow me. All the while they were claiming to lead people in Jesus' name, they were actually leading people away from him. And we've seen that Paul has described the false teachers as defiled and unbelieving. They were marked by these fundamentals of false religion, that lack of truth and the self-service aspect. And they have been described in verses 10 to 16 as insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They reflect the culture in which they were trying to minister. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is what they bring to the Christian table, so to speak. They reflect that culture. They bring lies into the midst of the church. They're marked by evil, beastly behavior. They're lazy and self-indulgent. And they're influencing people in that same direction. Their works before God and men are, according to God's word, wicked. They're ministering these things in Jesus' name. Given what you know tonight about what godliness should look like. 
Would you say that they truly knew the Lord? Now, some people in the church would say, well, it's not for me to judge. We can't really tell what's going on in their hearts. Who am I to say I'm a sinner too? And I don't want to downplay the need for humility, for taking the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of a brother. But we're not dealing with that category here. Listen to what Paul says about those who are acting in this way in the church. Listen to what he says about those whose lives demonstrate so little truth and so much selfishness. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul doesn't mince words either. Paul says here that the false teachers... The defiled and unbelieving, as he calls them, profess to know God. They are using words to say, I know God. I might even know him in a personal way. But they were known themselves for that manner of living that proved otherwise. He says they deny God by their works. That is, they act in such a way as they show that they want nothing to do with God. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. To be detestable is to be an abomination. These false teachers are objects of strong hatred in the sight of God and godly people. As disobedient men, they are known to be rebels against the Lord, refusing to submit to Him, the one they claim to be serving, as they serve themselves. Having been tested against the moral standards in God's law, They are found to be dishonorable vessels, not honorable ones. They are not set apart as holy. They're not useful to the master of the house, as Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. They're not ready for any good work. Take those three terms that Paul uses and string them together again. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Do they fit the description of someone who claims to know God. I want to consider the answer to that question as as I bring it to a close and as we bring this passage to bear on our lives. I made the statement earlier on that the question about whether we truly know God is perhaps the most important question we will ever consider as human beings on this earth. Do you and I know about God or do we know him personally how can we tell the difference it's in considering the nature of knowing God that I think we can be helped in answering that question the stakes are high the stakes are very high here as we consider the eternal destiny of those who spend a lifetime professing to know the Lord without actually being in a personal transforming relationship with him. As we've seen in the example of the false teachers on Crete, as it's revealed in Titus 1, especially verse number 16, it is possible to be self-deceived about whether we truly know God or not. Especially as we consider the false teachers whose lives were marked by all kinds of rebellion. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. And he warns his disciples about the false prophets that would come into their midst, go about ministering in his name, thinking they were serving him, while actually being disastrously deceived. Jesus warned, 
Matthew chapter 7 from verse number 20, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that day of judgment, the day that he calls an account, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now that word lawlessness is key here as we faithfully apply that passage. We've got to think of what the false teachers on Crete were doing, the false teachers that Jesus himself dealt with were doing. They were workers of lawlessness. Professing to know God, denying him by their works. But those are some of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture, as far as I'm concerned. As you consider that those who profess to know God but deny him by their works may well, one will. There's no may about it. They will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Surely as we consider the possibility of professing to know God but being able to deny him by our works, to be deceived about our salvation, this text that we've looked at tonight should compel us to evaluate our lives in light of Scripture, in light of these warnings, to confirm our calling and election in the Lord. Given the eternal consequences for the one who has been deceived into thinking that they know God when they don't, this needs to be said. Words that say, you know God, must be accompanied by works that prove it. Let me say that again. Words that say you must, words that say you know God, must be accompanied by works that prove it. Paul stresses this a number of times throughout that letter. Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He grounds his instruction for godly living in chapter 2 in the truth that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. We've been set free, purchased out of that lawless behavior and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We should be known for our good works if we claim to know God. Please, we'll get to this when we go through that passage, but please note the order that we just read. We are to be redeemed and then go on to do good works. We're not to do good works in order to be redeemed. That would be false religion. Paul is insistent in his letter to Titus that people are to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 8, he says, we need to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. I hope the contrast is clear between the unsaved, defiled, and unbelieving false teachers who were unfit for any good work and those who have been saved to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior who are to be zealous to give glory to God through their good works. That's an important contrast to come away with as we've studied this. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The profession of our faith must be matched by the practice of it. 
Far from being detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work, God's people are called to be God-pleasing, obedient, and of service to him and others. Make no mistake that it's a practice that flows out of a whole life, gospel-powered, Christ-focused transformation that impacts every aspect of our lives. I'm looking forward to going into chapter 2, but let's look ahead now as we consider what I just said. God wants to see this profession of faith that we have marked by whole life change. He says in chapter 2 that older men, older women, younger men and younger women who profess to know the Lord are professing him and actually being changed. Those in the pulpit, those in the pew are being sanctified. They're not content to profess faith and live otherwise. Relationships in the home change. Relationships between parents and their children change. Relationships in the workplace change. Relationships in the way that we uh, relate to our government changes. There is a whole life change. Not like we see in the false teachers who make a profession of faith and deny him by their works. Titus 1 has finished on a note that reminds us on the subject of knowing God that it is possible to be self-deceived. That's quite sobering, isn't it? But texts like these are often used to shake us, to cause us to evaluate where we are. We're familiar, aren't we, with that exhortation that comes from Paul to the Corinthian church. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We're being challenged to do that tonight from our text, I think. Nate Brooks is an author that I've just come to know about, and he gives some excellent insight along these lines. He's got an excellent book called Identifying Heart Transformation, and he's, he's written the whole book to help us discern, as Paul helps us to discern, whether true heart change has happened or not. Paul models for us tonight this discernment, this comparison between works and a profession of faith. But Brooks says this, For those who do profess to follow Christ, genuine transformation of heart takes place within the larger context of a faithful life. Obedience and patterns of righteousness are entirely required. Let me read that again. Obedience and patterns of righteousness are entirely required For the observed change to be the product of a changed heart. Believers will certainly stumble and fall, and believers may certainly engage in lengthy battles, sometimes lifelong battles, with sin and temptation. However, the Bible's expectation is that Christ will have all of us. So I love his careful, his his pastoral regard for the existence of sin that remains in the true believer. As we come alongside one another, and I hope we will to help one another discern true heart change, to discern whether we are indeed in the faith, then we ought to keep in mind what he said there about the genuine believer still having sin present in the heart. But I also love his faithful commitment to what we've studied tonight when he says, the reorientation of a person's heart leads to righteous outworkings in all of life. Christ will have all of us There's to be change in all aspects of life for those who have truly embraced the gospel, for those who truly profess to know God. If we profess to know God with our works, 
are we, sorry, if we profess to know God with our words, are we validating that? Are we demonstrating that through our works? Hopefully we've been helped tonight with some insight from what Paul has given us from these false teachers. Hopefully we've been equipped to guard against things that could really tear our church apart. This lack of truth, this self-service in the leadership. I apply that to my own heart first. Since whether we truly know God is perhaps the most important question you and I will ever have to consider, let us carefully and prayerfully examine ourselves. Let us test ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to have your word opened up to us by your spirit tonight. Lord, this has been a hard text to have studied. God, this is convicting for me as I see so much change that needs to happen. But God, we recognize that it is possible to be self-deceived. We all stumble in so many ways, as James says. The heart is deceptive. It is wicked. Who can know it except you, Lord? We're thankful for your word and how it helps us dis- helps to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We're so often prone to wander. God, we're thankful to be challenged at times by your word, challenged to evaluate whether we are in the faith. God, we want to be on guard for these fundamentals of false religion. God, we're bombarded with falsehood inside and outside the church. Help us to seek the truth and to live it out. God, help us not to be self-centered in our approach to ministry. Convict us of sin, Lord. Break us of those things where we have been self-centered. We think of that acronym, Jesus, others, you, joy, Lord. Help us to serve our Lord Jesus first. May that be seen by our good works for others. May we know the blessing of that obedience for ourselves. We're thankful to have been challenged by your word, Lord. I pray that this message would be used mightily to purify your church, to spur us on to greater faithfulness. And God, I ask that you would use these words even in the relationships that we've built within Emmanuel Baptist Church. Help us to come alongside one another in a caring way, in a way that's committed for your glory and the witness of our church to help us, to help one another discern whether we truly be in the faith, to be seeing eye dogs, to shine a spotlight of your word into the lives of those that we love so that we would all grow in the image and likeness of Christ by speaking the truth and love to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.